The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. A man named Simeon was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. He eagerly anticipated the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple area. Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This boy is assigned to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that generates opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who belonged to the tribe of Asher. She was very old. After she married, she lived with her husband for seven years. She was now an 84-year-old widow. She never left the temple area, but worshipped God with fasting and prayer night and day. She approached at that very moment and began to praise God and to speak about Jesus to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. We give you thanks, God, for the gift to come together, to worship, to celebrate, to be. We ask that as we turn our hearts and minds, um, not only from the family that we have expanded this morning, but to the family that we understand ourselves to be part of across space and time, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Earlier this week, I was introduced to the work of a scholar named Dr. Elise Bolding. She was a peace builder, a sociologist, and a sort of activist. And I say sort of activist because it wasn't so much that she was out there kind of on the streets rallying for big sweeping changes, although I imagine she wouldn't be opposed to that. No, I I say sort of activist because she was tended to be more interested in enacting her ideas. And so in this, I I suppose we could call her an, an, an activist. Anyway, one of the main ways that she did this was in correlation with her work around studying families. Um, and cross-cultural generation, cross-generational community and the broader kind of network of relationships that shape the world we live in. And one of the things that struck me about her work was a concept that she calls the 200-year present. 
The 200-year present is this exercise that any of us can do, especially in those times maybe when we are feeling entrenched or tangled up in the complexities of this present moment and overcome with despair. The 200-year present helps us to kind of pull back our lenses and our perception of time and enables us to understand certain events with greater perspective. We kind of unpacked this a little bit actually during our um, series on how to be a good ancestor last month. The way that it works is this. If you think about the oldest person that you knew at your youngest age, the oldest person that you knew at your youngest age, let's say a grandparent or a great-grandparent, and then you think of the youngest person that you might know at your oldest age. The youngest person that you might know at your oldest age. And that span of time, which these two people touch, is roughly 200 years. It isn't bound by any particular historical classification, but it can kind of help you grasp just how much can happen in that window of time. When I think about my oldest grandparent, they were born in an era when a car was a revelation. I mean, have you ever thought about where the term horsepower comes from? (laughs) What it's in reference to? Since then, then we've developed not only cars, but airplanes and helicopters, and not only telephones, but mobile phones and the internet. A lot has happened, even just in that previous, the one leading up to me, right? But then, if you think about the youngest person that you might know toward the end of your life, and, and even try to imagine what 100 years from then might look like, In this, we are somehow in contact with the span of at least 200 years, a window of time which houses up to five generations. In seeing the world and our lives through this lens, we're not only humbled, but also released in a way. Released from having to achieve all the solutions or fix all of the world's problems all at once. Released to trust the questions that we carry today might find their way to some form of solution. And even if they don't, we can find comfort in the knowledge that we are not the first or last ones to carry such questions. The 200-year present gives us space to see and understand more broadly. And I thought about the 200-year present as I reflected on our passage for today. Here we have the Holy Family arriving at the temple for Mary's purification and Jesus' presentation. Mary is 40 days postpartum and deemed ready to finally rejoin the worshiping community upon presenting her sacrifice. And she brings with her two pigeons, a reminder that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, for all of their celebrity, were not a glamorous Kardashian-like enterprise, but rather an economically, politically, and socially vulnerable family trying to keep their heads above water. Leviticus tells us that two pigeons was a poor people's offering. And I picture them entering 45 minutes later than planned, Joseph pushing their travel stroller system, diaper dude, diaper bag, filled to the brim with items for every imaginable baby emergency, and Mary hoping that they can get in and out before she starts leaking, carrying a cage with two skittish pigeons who are starting to get the sense that this day is about to take take a turn for the worse. God incarnate or not, Jesus was surely still waking up every couple of hours for a feeding and a diaper change. And so, like any family with a baby, it is a victory to just have made it. Can I get an amen? (laughs) They walk in, and before they've gone halfway up to the altar, two elders approach with a rapidness in their steps that is disproportionate to their frail bodies. And Simeon reaches them first. The cloudiness of his cataracts do not prevent the brightness in his eyes. At long last, here he is, arms outstretched. But before taking Jesus, he asks permission of Mary, because that's what we do. We always ask permission to touch anyone's babies. 
And Joseph heads him off with a bottle of organic Purell whipped out from a holster in the diaper bag. Permission granted and properly sanitized, Simeon gazes into Jesus' face with joy. Not far behind is Anna with observations of her own. Neither Joseph nor Mary have ever met Simeon or Anna, but they know exactly who they are. For as long as they've been alive, they've known ones like these, faithful, present, anchors in the community, elders who, at least seemingly, are steadfast in their witness and constant in their commitment. The ones who not only tell the stories and teach about God's promises, but also hold those promises until it's time for them to be passed on, trusting that one day they will be fulfilled. It is ones like these and so many others who make up that unique constellation of relationships that are less biological and more than sociological. Relationships that exist not because of obligation or hemoglobin, but because of a promise animated by what bell hooks called a love ethic. Care, commitment, trust, responsibility, respect, and knowledge. And while all that might sound very obvious in practice, it can be actually a very uncommon phenomenon. Over the course of his life, and especially here in the beginning, the folks who show up for Jesus and recognize for him for who he is are driven by that love ethic. They are less a match on 23andMe than they are on the Ten Commandments, defined by kinship rather than guardianship. In other words, these are Jesus' chosen family. From queer communities to phone plans to pop culture, the concept of family has been stretched, reconfigured, and reimagined in any number of ways to capture the unique network of relationships that not only comprise our social safety nets and streaming logins, but also help us find our sense of belonging, of home. And while this concept may seem modern for us, scripture gives us countless examples of in which chosen family has always been part of God's vision and kinship. Jesus is no exception. He is just a continuation of that. But what does it look like to be part of the kind of chosen family that Jesus was a part? Well, while Mary has been counting carefully the fingers and toes, it's Anna, the widow of 77 years, who has dedicated her life to prayer and fasting, she is the one who sees in Jesus the redemption of Israel. And while Joseph has been making sure that Jesus is properly burped, it is Simeon who recognizes the salvation of not just Israel, but all the Gentiles. The community is needed to help Mary and Joseph, but especially Jesus and everyone else in the community, to appreciate each other. And how our gifts might be part of God's, recognize how our gifts might be part of God's broader work in the world. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with this. Mary is not a deficient mother and Joseph is not a delinquent father. They're about as diligent and fastidiously faithful as one could hope. They not only make sure they are counted in the empirical census when Mary's about to pop, they then show up for all of the regular and required rituals of their tradition. In civic and faith life, Mary and Joseph are dedicated and responsible parents, exactly the kind of people you want taking care of you if you're going to go take the risk to go from omnipotent divine power to vulnerable human being, right? You want people who are not going to forget to take care of you. But while Mary and Joseph are the container in which the seedling can grow, it is the faith community, chosen family, who are the soil. It is the community of faith which nourishes our capacity to see ourselves and each other more fully. And it is this, and this is especially important, especially in helping us to hold us up, particularly when the mantle of our gifts seems heavier than we can bear. 
Did you catch it? Simeon notices something else after the grand prophecy, something that Mary cannot and surely does not want to see. The boy, her firstborn, will do powerful things in this, um, but in this he will be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, a great revealer of divided hearts and a sign that generates opposition. Your child will generate opposition. In other words, Jesus may be your pride, and he may even be your joy, but he won't make you proud, and many people will feel despair. In fact, his life will shatter your soul. How's that for a baptismal blessing? (laughs) But from the vantage point of those at the time in which Luke was written, in which this story was written, and this story only shows up in Luke, these words might have actually been oddly comforting because by that time, Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. So this is well after 70 years in which the temple had been destroyed. And on the one hand, one could imagine that this passage was written to entertain maybe a little bit of nostalgia, right? Remembering the good old days when the temple was standing and everyone could engage freely in life and faith together. But I have a feeling that the author was less interested in making Jerusalem great again than he was in reminding people of their 200-year present. That Simeon and Anna, in the sunset of their life, perhaps met the youngest person that they would know. And that young person would grow up to crack open something powerful and dangerous and life-giving that turned their world upside down. And one wonders who the youngest person Jesus met before his death. Regardless, that person went on to watch the most powerful empire in the world decay and collapse. In spite of the world burning down all around them, those early readers of Luke's gospel could be encouraged in knowing that they are part of a much larger story and reminded that they belong to a chosen family whose faithfulness bridges and links one generation to the next. Simeon and Anna received Jesus, and it was a radical act of hope in a time when hope seemed choked, when it seemed that the empire would never fail. The author of Luke recorded this story some years later, generations later, as a radical declaration of expectation amidst political upheaval and uncertainty. And today, we carry forward that story as a radical recommitment of faith as we receive new members into this community and into the broader body of Christ. As members of Jesus' chosen family, we carry these stories as part of an ancient future promise of liberation and healing that extends so far back and so far forward that we cannot see over the horizon in either direction. When we join this chosen family, we do so as a people who in many ways reflect the spectrum of realities, voices, and experiences which took a seat at the many tables which Jesus hosted. People who were fearful and anxious, healthy and ill, young and older, women and men and everything in between, confused and discouraged, poor, disappointed, and unsuspecting. People like Joseph and Mary, and Simeon and Anna, and you, and me, and everyone who has yet to join us at God's table. People who do our best, the best that we can, to meet God's promises with our own, to live out a love ethic, showing up for each other as members of God's family, doing their best to live in God's love and helping each other to follow in the way of Jesus. 
From Simeon and Anna to shepherds and animals, Jesus' chosen family was less about shared DNA than it was about shared hope, a longing for God's inbreaking among us and the vision of a world made new through a promise fulfilled. This promise is carried and leapfrogged across generations and 200 years windows, woven together and lived out amongst a network of relationships that is our choosing in response to a God who chose us first. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks that you choose us. We give you thanks that we have chosen you. We ask that as we find our way through life and time together, that we might be both humbled and inspired at the ways that you invite us to be part of your story. Help us to continue maybe putting just one foot in front of the other as we make our way forward and through. But help us from time to time to get our heads above the water and see the landscape of that 200-year window to give thanks, to be grounded, and to look forward to another day as we choose you again and again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.